My sermon this morning is entitled, Advent, A Time of Waiting. Advent, A Time of Waiting. And our main text this morning will be from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 25, verse 9. Isaiah 25, verse 9 is our main text. Traditionally, at this time of year, the church enters the Advent season. And today we begin a four-week Advent sermon series. What does Advent mean and, and why has the church observed it? Well, Advent comes from the medieval Latin meaning arrival or appearance. And it was once very commonly used in the church, not so much anymore to speak of the advent of our Lord, referring to the Lord Jesus becoming incarnate, God the Son being incarnate in Jesus of Nazareth. The church also used to frequently speak of his second advent, referring to Lord Jesus Christ's second coming. And Advent also refers to a period of time before Christmas, four weeks prior to the day we celebrate the birth of our Savior, traditionally has become the Advent season in the Christian church, at least the Western church, and it's been celebrated as such from about the fourth century A.D. Well, we're going to use Advent in all of these three senses as we examine and celebrate this season in the next short time ahead of us. In this idea of an arrival or appearance, we find a connection to waiting at least when the arrival is expected, when it's something that we look forward to, as in the birth of a baby. And we know that in the birth of a baby, we have usually and generally a good idea of when the arrival will be. With this in mind, then, we should see Advent also as a season of waiting. It refers to, in one sense, the, the waiting of the arrival of a baby. In another sense, the arrival of something much greater than just a, a human baby. This is a lesson that's taught in those colorful advent calendars that, that many children have, and perhaps some of you had those when you were young, you know, where you each, each day you were able to put a star on the calendar, or maybe open the window to reveal uh, a colorful little picture, or maybe even a treat. And how hard was that for you as a child to wait each day, knowing that you know, there's a lot of candies or a lot of really interesting pictures that are ahead in the Advent season. Well, this, this is, uh, idea is, is a teaching, a lesson, if you will, for the young ones that we wait. We wait for the good thing to come in anticipation of the great day of Christ's birth, the joyous celebration of Christmas. And we enter this Advent season 
with the knowledge that Christ appeared in history. And we can look forward to an exact date on our calendar to celebrate our Savior's birth. But this was not always so. Before the incarnation became historical fact, God's faithful were not given a date for the advent. That is the arrival, the appearance of the one for whom they were asking. And the prophet Isaiah writes of this waiting. This is our main text. So turn with me, if you've not already, to Isaiah 25, verse 9. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So Isaiah was called by God to be a prophet to the people of Israel eight centuries before the birth of Christ, 800 years. And he was anointed to speak to the people of Judah on behalf of God and call attention to their sins and their need for salvation in the face of coming divine judgment. Besides warnings, though, which was basically, that's the prophet's duty, the Old Testament prophets warned Isaiah also prophesied about coming salvation and restoration, which is something each of the prophets spoke of. Warnings, but God's judgment is accompanied by, accompanied by mercy and restoration. So Isaiah here in this passage speaks of that day, which is the day of the Lord's appearing. Isaiah prophetically speaks to Israel, telling them that the one whose arrival they are waiting for is different. It's different from what they've experienced previously in the past, in their history. This is not going to be a human king, a mortal descendant of King David. This will not be a mortal human anointed by God for a holy purpose such as King Cyrus of Persia or the judges of Israel. No, they're waiting for the Lord God himself because with the Lord's arrival, he will bring salvation to his people. King Cyrus of Persia, who Isaiah refers to in the Hebrew as Mashiach, which we translate or can translate as Messiah, granted liberty to the captives held in Babylon. He ordered them released to return home to to Judah, to Jerusalem, if they so wanted. And he gave orders that the temple to their God was to be rebuilt. The military leaders of Israel before the period of the monarchy were called the judges. They were also called Moshiach, or deliverer or savior. They delivered Israel from their foreign human enemies. Each of these types of human rescuers, deliverers, messiahs provided only temporary rescue or salvation from human bondage and oppression. They were powerless, powerless in the face of spiritual evil. There was nothing that could be done for that. 
But the Lord God revealed through his prophets in Israel that he would bring everlasting salvation from spiritual bondage and oppression. And this, this is who the faithful in Israel waited for. This brings me to my first point. Point number one this morning is God's faithful people wait with hope. God's faithful people wait with hope. When going up to Jerusalem to worship in the temple, faithful Israelites would sing on the journey. In the Psalms, these are known as the songs of ascents. One such song of ascent is Psalm 130. And Martin Luther called this psalm, along with a few others, a Pauline psalm after Paul the Apostle. Because this psalm is about God's offer of forgiveness by grace apart from works, a main focus of Paul's teaching centuries later. So Psalm 130, we're going to spend some time in that. This is what the pilgrims would sing. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So we see in verses five and six of this psalm, It connects waiting for the Lord with hope. And the word hope in verse 5 can be translated also, and in his word, I have a promise. Hope can be translated promise. But hope or promise in what? Verse 4 gives us the answer to that. It reveals the hope is in the Lord's forgiveness, because without this forgiveness, no one could stand, according to verse 3. Well, stand where and when. The psalmist is talking about standing on the day of judgment, on the great Lord's day. And standing on that day signifies receiving a verdict of being found righteous. And sin, we can see in this psalm, tells us that sin can only be defined in relationship with God. And where a relationship with God is missing, the awareness of sin is inevitably missing also. And this has been obvious in every human culture around the world since the fall in the garden. And we see it most certainly today. In verse 6, There's this wonderful phrase that gives us an image here. The psalmist's soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. 
This waiting he's talking about is so great, so intense that the refrain is repeated by the psalmist. But what, what does it mean? What does it mean that one's soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning? Well, the cities of ancient Israel were surrounded by protective walls. And at night, upon these walls stood watchmen who guarded the city during the hours of darkness when the city was vulnerable to attack from its enemies. In morning light, the dawn brought safety and security, and the watchmen could, could stand down. Everything was safe. But the psalmist here, what he's looking for, looking forward to, is something greater, something better than the everyday morning, which every morning is followed by what? By night. It's repetitive. He's looking for something greater than that, for security that is not just passing, for security that is eternal. He's also looking for something better than what was possible under the old covenant, the sacrificial system that the Lord God gave Israel. Because under divine inspiration, he sings in verse 7 of plentiful redemption. Plentiful redemption. And in verse 8, that he, that is God, will redeem. It's a Hebrew word that means uh, pay a ransom from imprisonment. Will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Not just ceremonial impurity, but from every moral sin and transgression. Something greater was coming. Actually, it was someone. And he, the someone, identified himself as such one Sabbath day in a wheat field to a group of Pharisees who were accusing him and his disciples of breaking the law of the Sabbath. And he told these men who accused him, Something greater than the temple is here, for the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. This is who the faithful in Israel were waiting for. As Matthew tells us, a son born by a virgin whom they shall call Emmanuel, which means God with us. The Lord God was coming to them, and not only to them, but to the entire world, including the despised Samaritans, and even the Gentiles. Brothers, sisters, friends, that's us today. This was a shocker to the Israelites. No, those people aren't worth saving. They're not worth salvation. They're like dogs. And yet, not in the eye of the Lord God. So they were looking forward to this, and this advent, this appearance, this arrival would be in the flesh in the flesh as a newborn baby. When I was a little boy growing up in Los Angeles, my grandmother often cared for me and my sister while my mom worked. Well, my grandmother was uh, of that generation where many women never learned to drive. So we lived in Los Angeles without a car. Imagine that. But we took a bus everywhere and my grandmother knew which bus to take, knew which bus routes to take, knew how to get transfers from one bus route to another. She knew the whole thing. So when we needed to go someplace, we went to the bus stop and we waited. 
My grandmother knew her destination, and she knew how to get there as we waited for the bus. So we had complete hope and assurance we would get to where we wanted to go. But this leads me oddly to my second point, point number two. Those without Christ wait without hope. Those without Christ wait without hope. So fast forward in my life, I was a young man. I was living on my own. My father had been transferred across the country. So I decided to strike out on my own, going to college and working. And the transmission in my car goes out. I have no family here. I have no way to get back and forth to work. So I tried using the bus. At the time, this was a long time ago, there was no internet, there was no Google. You could not pull up information on the computer about bus routes and how to get here, how to get there. I had, I had no idea. Once I got that driver's license at 16, I was done with buses. I, did, I hadn't been on a bus in a number of years. And one night I got off work and I couldn't find a ride. I had no way of getting home. I lived miles uh, away from where I worked. So it's like, I guess I got to take the bus. So I walk to a bus stop on a major street that, that the street points in the direction I need to go. And I stand there at the bus stop, hoping that I get home. But I had no idea what bus to get on. I had no knowledge of anything. First bus comes, okay, is this my bus? Well, the bus driver doesn't stop, he just keeps going. The bus is packed. In those days, many people rode buses. It was like there was no room. So I don't know if I didn't do the right sign, you know, to stop, or he just was like, I'm full, I'm not taking on another one. So I figured I gotta wait for the next bus. The next bus comes along and stops. Oh, thank goodness, and I get on the bus. And it's heading towards my home. It's heading eastbound on Huntington Drive. And it takes off eastbound on Huntington Drive for a couple blocks and then turns northbound. And we start going, up this hill into an area that's completely dark. I don't know where I am. I don't know anything. I don't know how, uh, there's not even a bus stop coming up. And, and I had tried to talk to bus drivers before when I started taking the bus about how much do I pay you? How do I get to, no talking aloud to the driver. You don't talk to bus drivers. So I thought, I can't talk to this guy. He'll, he might toss me out. Well, I want him to toss me out. Well, so eventually the bus comes to a bus stop and I get out. I know that my home is kind of to the southeast, but that's about all I know. And I walk home. And it was a long, dark night finding my way home. My point is, is that when I waited at that bus stop, I kind of knew my destination, but I had no plans on how to get there. I just, I just had no reason to hope. In fact, I remember waiting for that bus and I was very nervous. In fact, you could say I was filled with dread because I thought this could end up not good. I mean, I didn't think I was gonna get hurt or anything, but, but <laughs> I, did, I didn't know where I was going and I ended up where I do not know. <laughs> That is what those without Christ really are doing. Whether we realize it or not, we're all waiting. We wait in hope or we wait in dread. 
us who are in Christ wait in hope of the promises of the Lord God, like Hebrews, Hebrews 11.1 1 describes Christian faith as assurance, assurance or certainty of things hoped for. Hoped for meaning the conviction for the, uh, of things, for, of, of things that we don't see but have been promised by God. And this Christian hope, brothers and sisters, is life everlasting with the Lord. Very similar to what the Old Testament and those men who preach the gospel, who preach from the Old Testament at the time after our Lord's ascension, called the hope of Israel. It was the same thing. It was just, we just knew a little bit more after the appearance of our Lord what this was all about. But, but first of all, this hope of Israel, the Redeemer of Israel needed to appear needed to come to the earth, and the faithful people of God waited in Israel for that first advent. They didn't know really how it was going to occur, but it was promised by the Lord God, and they had faith in that promise. The Lord would cause it to come to pass. So 40 days after the birth of Jesus, Joseph and Mary bring him to the temple. We read about this in chapter two of Luke. And what's going on here is that Mary and the baby boy have to undergo a purification rite according to the law of Moses. And there's a man who comes there into the temple when they're there named Simeon, who Luke tells us was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Luke 2, 25, if you notice one of our hymns, that was the, that was the scripture for that hymn. That wasn't planned as I, I turned to Karen when... Um, uh, Brother John was, was reading that. I said, that's going to be in my uh, um, sermon. You know, can you spot it? Did you spot it, honey? Yes, she, she, she did. Anyway. This idea, this consolation of Israel is a reference to the prophecy given in Isaiah 40, verses 1 and 2, which I'm going to read to you. Isaiah 40, 1 and 2, which reads, Comfort, comfort. My people, says your God, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So Isaiah foretold the appearance of the comforter of Israel, the one Simeon was waiting for, the one who would change the world. That's what Isaiah is saying. The world's going to completely change. Luke tells us that on that day in the temple, the Holy Spirit led Simeon there. Simeon was not a priest or a Levite doing temple service. No, Luke tells us this man was righteous and devout, waiting. It's like many of you, my brothers here, righteous and devout and waiting, waiting in obedience on the Lord. So when Jesus was brought into this temple, into the Lord's temple, this little baby, the Holy Spirit revealed to Simeon that the one from who, for whom he had waited had arrived. Rejoicing and praising God, Simeon lifts Jesus up in his arms and says, Lord, 
Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and a glory to your people Israel. Simeon, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, then speaks to Mary about her child. And he says to Mary, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Simeon foretold something that we perhaps don't like to think about. It's difficult. It's painful. It's hard. But it's reality. And that is, a birth means a death. All born into this fallen world have a day appointed for death. But the arrival of the one Simeon waited for and now held in his arms would change that with his death on a Roman cross. This is what gives the Advent season such powerful meaning. The necessity of the birth in the manger is found in the death on the cross. But back to really the focus of point number two, and that is those who reject the birth, death, and resurrection of our Lord are nonetheless waiting also, whether they realize it or not, for the rejecters, the doubters, the non-believers and unbelievers. I speak to you, Satan in the world does not want you to think about what awaits you. So you are told, be in the moment. Have you heard that phrase? Just be in the moment. In other words, the pop psychologists know that, that anxiety and depression is just booming in our age. People dread something. They have anxiety about something. So don't think about that. Don't think about your future. Just be in the moment. Well, that's nonsense, friends, brothers and sisters. That's like a brute beast being in the moment. The Lord God made us to be his image bearers. Yes, the moment is important, but also is our destinies important. What we're doing at the moment, how it impacts what will come, both to us and to others, is very important. Also, many focus on worldly matters and riches rather than on the Lord that distracts them from waiting for the inevitable. Perhaps you know people like this. I don't like to think about that stuff. I think about this, you know, da 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 da. I think about sports. I think about how my, um, how my retirement account's doing, how my investments are doing. Luke chapter 12 tells us a story. Jesus was teaching to this large crowd one day, and this man from the crowd asks him to intervene in a family dispute. And Jesus replied, Take care. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Then he tells them a parable about this man whom he calls a rich fool. <clears throat> now, this is, this is a biblical viewpoint on this man. Because this man, in that day and age, to, to 
just about everybody would not have been considered a fool. Neither would he be considered a fool in our day and age. In both cases, he would have been thought of as a very astute businessman. Perhaps we should keep our eyes on him. Maybe he'll write articles for um, uh, Fortune magazine and we can learn the secrets of growing our wealth like he does. This man had so much, he was so successful, he didn't have enough storage for all of his stuff. And he decided he's gonna tear down his buildings and build bigger ones. And after this project is over, he thinks, I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But the Lord says in his parable that God said to him, to this man, fool. See how God's view of people is different than our view? We might think this guy is, is a wise, astute businessman. God says he's a fool. For this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? In other words, you're not taking this stuff with you. Someone else is gonna get it. Maybe someone that you don't care much for. Maybe a complete stranger. You are enriching someone else for a short period in time. Each of us only have that short period of time in eternity. And then we get on the bus that takes us to our destination. Jesus concludes this parable by saying that this is the destiny of those who think only of themselves and have no concern for God. This is the way of the fool, biblically speaking. <clears throat> this week, maybe you saw it in the news, one of the most influential men in the investing world died, Charlie Munger, billionaire vice president of Berkshire Hathaway, a man whose word everyone hung on. How can we get as rich as Charlie? And Charlie's really, he's a great guy because he, he gives it in folksy wisdom, how to become amazingly rich in a folksy manner. What's better than that? So this article on, from Reuters about his death quotes a shareholder in his investment firm talking about Charlie's death. And the shareholder says, it's a shock. It's ridiculous. Charlie Munger was 99 years old. It's not a shock when a 99-year-old man dies. A 99-year-old man should expect to die at any time, shouldn't he? But do you see how the focus on worldly goods makes people not even logical? Also, someone who died this week, Henry Kissinger. Henry Kissinger. If you're of my generation or thereabouts, that was one of the most powerful men of, this, of the late 20th century. He was involved deeply in the end of the Vietnam War. He was involved in our negotiations with communist China, opening China, opening China to, uh, to the West. He died at 100. And no one was shocked by, by that death. Of course, I don't think Henry was quite as popular as Charlie, because Henry didn't come across with folksy wisdom. 
Henry came across as an extremely intelligent man who often talked down to people. But here, these two men who lived long, long lives and accomplished, I would say, what, what they set out to accomplish. Yet, they meet the same end that every single one of us will meet. And what does that power, what does that influence, what does that money account for now to them where they are? I don't know where they are. I'll be honest with you. I've never heard anything about a Christian faith from either of them, but it is not my place nor any of ours to judge them. That's, that's to the Lord God to judge them. But no matter where they are, whether with the Lord or in damnation, they realize now that what they accomplished in this life wasn't what they thought it was cracked up to be. In this age of affluence and technology, anxiety and depression are high, as I said, because of this underlying, unacknowledged dread of what awaits. We read about people that are, that are, that are extremely wealthy, extremely powerful, that have, have gotten to the top of whatever their game is. And sometimes we read stories about how unhappy, how desperately unhappy they are. That does not make sense in a secular worldview. It makes perfect sense in a biblical worldview. The author of Hebrews understands this feeling of dread as he warns the unrepentant. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And every human being, whether they claim to be an atheist or some other form of theist, knows that there is a God deep in their heart. Maybe they won't admit it, but the knowledge of God is within us. Such says God's word. He has revealed that to us. And this author of Hebrews reminds us that it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. Judgment, there's that word. That's that word that is dread and, and, and hated by the world. But there's good news. In Hebrews tells us before these things that Jesus Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. In other words, it's judgment and being in the hands of the living God. This is how the biblical writers would, would refer to God in the sense of a non-believer, someone that was not a, a person of God. It would be the living God. It's not the Lord God. Either that or Jesus Christ who takes away the sins. And Jesus' birth, necessary for a sacrificial death, brings us what we have longed for and most desired. Point number three in our last point this morning. We all wait for the certain advent to come. We all wait for the certain advent to come. Just as Satan couldn't stop the first advent, he is powerless to stop the second. The first advent, the birth of a baby boy in Bethlehem, would break the satanic death grip on the world. That's 
hard to, to reason and think about logically the birth of a little baby boy, a little baby boy from a family that didn't matter to anyone, a family that had really nothing going for them, a baby that had to be born in a manger is going to destroy, conquer the powers that have held the entire world in its sway? Who would have thought of such a thing? <laughs> Our Lord God. We would have thought of, 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 these, of great armies and, and, and magnificent weapons and this, that, and the other thing. It just took a baby and what that baby would do. And the demons knew who Jesus Christ was and why he had come and why he was to come again. Hear what the Gospels tell of the demonic response to our Lord's coming. This is what they say in Mark. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. In Matthew. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? And in Luke, they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Satan and the wicked spirits know final doom awaits them with the second advent. Like Simeon waiting, like the shepherds in the field watching, like the wise men in the east watching the skies for an appearance, an advent, we also wait. The author of Hebrews again points out that the fulfillment of Christ's first advent as a baby in Bethlehem, in that manger, gives us assurance of his second advent in power and majesty. Hebrews 9.28 tells us, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. That's us, brothers and sisters. Paul told Titus in that letter, Titus chapter 2, verse 13, he tells him, we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice that, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In the Greek grammar, this, is, this person is one and the same as God and Savior. Jesus Christ is not separate from the great God, the Trinity, the Godhead. We have evidence right there in God's word. That's for our friends that just can't wrap their minds around that. So the church and its members, that's, that's you brothers and sisters, by our lives, by our very experience, we confirm the testimony of Christ and his appearance. With his departure temporarily, he sent us the Holy Spirit so that we are not lacking any gift necessary for us to carry out Christ's commission to us as we wait for his second advent. 
And he promises, we read this in 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, that he will sustain us guiltless until that final day. That's assurance of your salvation. You will be guiltless until that final day. Now, am I or you, any of us, able to, to remain without sin the rest of our lives until we go to the Lord or if the Lord returns during our life? Can, can we be completely sinless? No, absolutely not. That's the reality of, of our lives in this fallen world, yet we are told he will sustain us guiltless. How marvelous is that? There's nothing better. In the interim, though, we just don't sit back. We're not to be lackadaisical. We're not to be lax. We're not to be lazy or even lethargic. The Lord commands his disciples. He commanded them then, and this command applies to us today. Luke 12, 36, he tells his disciples, us, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. So waiting does not mean inactivity. We know that there's a busy time ahead as we approach Christmas. But in the hectic days ahead, remember that we as all of God's faithful people have done through the ages, are waiting. We're waiting for the Lord's advent. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for the advent of our Savior. We give thanks for that which has come, which has made his, his salvation possible, and we give thanks for his advent, which is to come, which will restore and reconcile all things to you. Father, and we give thanks that we are safe in your care, in your love, in the in-between time, Father. Bless us in this in-between time, Father. Guide us as we live out our lives in a way that honors you that glorifies you. Father, may we be light unto those who do not know you, that they may come to faith in you. Not that we have any power, Father, but your love can reflect from us to them. May that be so, Father. And I give thanks for the rest of this Lord's Day that we may go from this place and remain focused on you. Bless these brothers and sisters. Bless my brothers and sisters watching on the internet. Father, and bless those who do not yet know the Lord Jesus as their Savior. Father, I pray that their hearts may be opened, that you may take those hearts of stone, those dead hearts, and turn them into living hearts of flesh as you have done with us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.